Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to the Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we've made our way through the Bill of Rights, we just wrapped up the Fifth Amendment to the Bill of Rights last week, and now it appears we're ready to tackle the Sixth. Where would you like to start? Well, let's start with the Sixth Amendment, and I might just bring greetings to the audience. It's a beautiful day here in Alabama, and I trust it is wherever the audience may be as well, but... Anyway, it's hot, but it's beautiful. But the Bill of Rights, of course, was adopted by the Congress in 1789 and received the necessary ratification of three-fourths of the states by 1791. And it's interesting, as we look to the amendments to our Constitution, we look to those first 10 amendments, and basically what those amendments do is they limit the power of government. But then we go on to the next 17 amendments, 11 through 17, and mostly what these do is expand the power of government. And that says something, I think, very important about the direction our nation has been going. We recall that when Ben Franklin was asked, what sort of government have you given us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. Part of what he meant by keeping it as a republic was keeping the scope of government limited. And I'm afraid we've been doing exactly the opposite, particularly in the last 50, 70 years. But let's look at this amendment in particular here, the Sixth Amendment. And part of what we could say about the beginning of the Sixth Amendment is it contains a number of rights that the defendant has in a criminal case Rights that the defendant probably doesn't want, but that in many cases it's in his interest that those rights exist and even that he take advantage of them. So let's look at the Sixth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have previously been ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. And we're going to start out by talking about this right to a speedy and public trial and then the right to an impartial jury. And that's probably as far as we're going to get today, but we'll just have to see how time progresses as we move along. I might just say that I was told once, and I think this was said sort of as a joke, I don't know if this ever happened or not, but that a defendant who was in jail wrote a letter to a judge saying that his Sixth Amendment rights had been violated, and he wanted a hearing about it. Well, the judge called him to come out of the jail and come up to the court for his hearing, and the judge said to him, okay, now, looking at the Sixth Amendment, are you saying you didn't have a speedy trial? No, it was speedy. Saying it wasn't public? No, it was public. I didn't want it to be public, but it was. Did you have an impartial jury? Yes. 
was the jury formed out of the state or district where your crime was committed? Yes. And were you informed of the nature of the accusation? Yes. Were you confronted with the witnesses against you? Yes. Did you have the right to subpoena witnesses on your behalf? Yes. And did you have the assistance of an attorney? Yes. Well, it looks to me like you had all of the rights of the Sixth Amendment guarantees. So how can you say that your Sixth Amendment rights were violated? And the defendant said, well, I take the Constitution very literally, Your Honor. And look what it says right there at the beginning. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial. And I didn't enjoy it one bit. Well, that's being a little more literal than even I would be, I think. But <laughs> at any rate, point of the matter is, this is a right. The right that, you're, that defendants often don't want, but it's a right that's in their best interest. And we start out by saying that this right applies in all criminal prosecutions. And that ought to be clear enough by itself, but... As to what that has been interpreted by the federal courts to mean, criminal prosecutions, of course, include all felony prosecutions. They include all misdemeanor prosecutions, but the courts have said that it does not include petty misdemeanors. So if you are charged with a petty misdemeanor, this means that at least in the federal courts, you are not entitled as a matter of right to a jury. You're entitled to a trial but not a jury. And so how do we define a petty misdemeanor? Well, the federal courts have defined a petty misdemeanor as a case in which the maximum punishment, if you are found guilty, not what you're actually sentenced to, but what the maximum could be, is $500 fine or six months in jail or both. That anything above that is no longer a petty misdemeanor and you are entitled to a trial by jury. Below that, you are not entitled to a trial by jury. You can request one, and the judge in his discretion may decide to give you one, but probably more than often will not. I should add, too, that that is the rule in our federal courts. In our state courts, sometimes the right to trial by jury will go beyond this. And in state courts, they might apply the right to trial by jury to much smaller offenses than this, maybe even speeding offenses or things like this. But understand that criminal prosecutions, as the term is used in the Sixth Amendment, refers to felonies and misdemeanors, but generally not to petty misdemeanors. There's a little dispute in the case law about that, but that seems to be the majority rule. So if we're talking about a case that involves six months confinement as a possibility or $500 fine, or both, if we're talking about a case that involves that or more, the defendant is entitled to a speedy and a public trial. Well, let's begin by talking about a speedy trial, because what does that mean? Does it mean a trial right away? No. Obviously, the prosecution has to have time to prepare its case, although many times the prosecution will have pretty well prepared its case or at least examined its witnesses to see that it has a case before the charges ever filed, but the defendant needs time to prepare a case as well. So it, in most cases, at least, is not going to mean a trial right away. So how do we determine whether the defendant's right to a speedy trial has been violated? 
is there a cutoff like 30 days or more or is it six months or more a year or more well there is no clear hard and fast rule and so we come to a supreme court case a case that was titled barker versus wingo in which the supreme court in 1972 held that there are four factors that the court is going to use in determining whether a defendant has been denied a speedy trial. I first started practicing law in 1970, a couple years before Barker versus Wingo came out. And at that time, it was pretty well up to the discretion of the judge to decide whether a speedy trial right had been violated or not. And I remember well, after I got out of law school and was waiting to go on active duty with the Air Force, at that time, I was serving as a deputy prosecutor in Woodbury County, Iowa. And I recall how I would look through the files of previous cases. And in those files, we would see defense attorneys filing motion after motion after motion, like comes now the defendant and hereby requests a 60-day delay and give some reason that may or may not have made any sense granted and six or a couple months later another request then after maybe a series of these requests here's another motion comes now the defendant and moves to have the case dismissed because his client has been denied a speedy trial after he himself has been requesting these delays well in the barker versus wingo case the court said we're going to look at four factors to determine whether a defendant has been denied a speedy trial. However, I don't think we're going to have time to get to those before the break, so I'll simply say that the right to a speedy trial goes at least as far back as the Magna Carta and at least as far back as as, as Cook and others there who would see the tendency of the state to the crown to put a defendant in jail and just hold him there for years and who, who needs to punish once we've already had him served for years as he's awaiting trial and so we can see the reasons why this is adopted but as to exactly how it's refined let's look at the wingo factors as we call them in barker versus wingo and we'll get to that after the break Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are making our way through the Sixth Amendment, and Colonel, you were just about to give us some of the details on the case of Barker versus Wayngrove. Interesting case, and anyway, it puts a little teeth into the speedy trial requirement, and basically, anytime you have a defendant who is claiming that his right to trial by jury or right to speedy trial, I should say, has been denied, and that would be true whether it was trial by jury or trial by judge alone, the court is going to look at these four factors that we call the Wingo factors. So here are the Wingo factors. First is whether the defendant has asserted or demanded his right to a speedy trial. If 
during this entire time, he's been requesting delays, then now to say I've been denied a speedy trial, well, no, that's certainly not going to fly. In fact, a common practice between prosecutors and defense attorneys is that if a defense attorney wants additional time, the prosecutor will say something like, yes, but then you're going to have to eat the time, by which he means you're going to have to make the request for delay so that you can't turn around and claim that your right to speedy trial has been denied. So has the defendant asserted a right to a speedy trial? Second question is the length of the delay. And there's no magic cutoff number of days or months here, but the longer the delay is, obviously, the more likely it will be considered a denial of a speedy trial. Third question is the reason that the state has delayed the trial or, or the court has delayed the trial. Maybe it's because the courts are closed due to the coronavirus. Maybe it's because there are witnesses who are out of the country and it's going to take time to locate them. Maybe the court's docket has just been too crowded. Maybe the prosecutor has just had a too busy a schedule or has a lot of special preparation he has to do for this case that means that it takes longer to get this case prepared than others. But are there good reasons for the delay? And then finally, has the defendant been harmed as a result of the delay? Now, what kind of harm could come to the defendant as a result of a delay, well, if he's in pretrial confinement, if he's in jail awaiting trial, then the harm is pretty obvious. But there could be other things. It could be that maybe his ability to present a defense has been compromised because key defense witnesses have died or moved away. Or maybe he has lost his job and he's been told that, sorry, you can't work here until this case is cleared up. And so he's without a job during this time. But whatever factors it might be, those four things, whether the defendant's asserted his right to a speedy trial, the length of delay, the reason for the delay, and the harm to the defendant from the delay, those are the four factors that the court is going to weigh in determining whether or not the defendant has been denied a right to a speedy trial. Now, I said at the beginning that this right to a speedy trial is a right that the defendant is entitled to, but a right that defendant probably doesn't really want that badly. And if he does, his attorney will probably convince him that a speedy trial is not in his best interest. Generally speaking, in criminal law, delays work to the benefit of the defense. In fact, there was a attorney in Tulsa when I lived there who was quoted as saying, the world's best defense attorney is father time. The longer the case delays, the more likely it is that the prosecution's witnesses are going to lose interest. Maybe the complaining witness, the victim himself, is going to lose interest or move away or die or not be available for other reasons. Also, during this time, there will be usually there's quite a bit of turnover in prosecutors' offices, and I remember when I became an assistant prosecutor waiting for the Air Force to take me on active duty, in addition to the regular cases that I was handling that were fresh on my desk there, I was given an old box of files of cases that the previous deputy county attorney had had and hadn't done anything with, and probably had been handed to him by one before, and as a result of the case file just kind of sits in the prosecutor's desk until it dissolves into dust. 
And in other words, and as a result of all these things, the longer you delay, the more likely the prosecutor might be to either dismiss the case or agree to a plea bargain to something far, far less than what he would have agreed to earlier just to get this case off the docket. And so it's usually, not always, but usually in the defendant's best interest that he not assert his right to a speedy trial, but he's entitled to that right, and he can assert it and get it within the variations of the Wingo factors if he chooses to. Again, the defendant being in pretrial confinement is an important issue. In fact, we had a rule in the military that if a defendant was in pretrial confinement longer than 30 days, then there was a rebuttable presumption that he had been denied his right to a speedy trial. That's a rule that is far stricter on the prosecution in the military than it is in the civilian courts. Anyway, there is the guarantee of the right to a speedy trial. So, Brian, do any questions arise in your mind about that right? Well, I'm thinking about a specific case just a couple of years ago, and this involved uh, uh, my friend Ammon Bundy and his brother Ryan and other members of their family. Uh, For two years, they were held in federal prison uh, awaiting trial. Now, granted, this was uh, two different trials, one in Oregon, one in in Las Vegas, Nevada. But uh, during that time, the, the presumption of innocence didn't seem to be much of a factor in that they were treated just like any other uh, federal prisoners. You know, they, they, were, uh, they were treated as just a big risk as any other prisoner who'd been convicted. And, you know, I don't know if it's just because things move slowly at the federal level, but uh, that two years of their life, ultimately, they were acquitted in Oregon. The um, charges were dismissed with uh, prejudice in Las Vegas, but they don't get that two years of their life back. So I'm I'm just curious how the how the federal courts might reconcile the idea of a speedy trial with the fact that two years of their lives are gone, and I don't think they can be brought back. I remember that case, and without knowing all the facts, you know, there's a lot of issues about what a lease of federal land involves and so on, but without knowing all the facts, I have to say that I had great sympathy with the ranchers in this case. But at any rate, again, we'd have to look at all of that in light of these factors. Were they asserting, demanding a speedy trial? And what were the reasons for the prosecutor's delay in this case? Did they have valid reasons for delaying? Maybe getting all the extra evidence they need. It was a complex case, all the publicity about it and so on. But I would say that it certainly raises the question, especially in light of the fact that they were in pretrial confinement this entire time. And even if they're not in pretrial confinement, still, when you got the criminal charge of that nature hanging over your head, your life is kind of on hold. So, again, I don't know exactly why, and it needs to be evaluated in light of those four factors. But I know a lot of people thought that the way the Bundys were treated in that case was unfair. Yeah, I I will go so far as to say it was nothing short of a, a miracle. That, that they were able to be freed and the charges dropped and, and, and the case in Oregon acquitted. But, uh, but it was very difficult for their families. I mean, we're talking 700 days of imprisonment while they waited for, for that uh, trial to play out. And, of course, God works in the judicial system. We read in the book of Proverbs that the heart of the king, and the word for king, melech, also means judge, is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. A judge 
certainly has an impact on a trial, and the judge certainly, God influences the judge many times, and it may simply be that God influenced the judge by, or the jury in this case, by letting them see the full facts, and when they saw the facts, they concluded that there was at least a reasonable doubt of the Bundy's guilt. I think that's a, I think you just zeroed in on the most likely explanation. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We'll come back. There is still much more to the Sixth Amendment. And again, you are listening to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We'll be back right after this. Welcome you back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we are making our way through the Sixth Amendment, let's talk about a public trial and, and what that means. Absolutely. Before we get to that, I might just say one thing else in regard to the Bundy case. that You know, a defense attorney has a duty that he is sworn to perform, and that duty is to use all legal and ethical means to persuade the jury to acquit his client or get his client the best deal he possibly can. Now, the prosecutor, on the other hand, does not necessarily have an interest in getting a conviction in this case. The prosecutor's duty is to do justice, and it certainly does not serve the interest of the public or the interest of justice to have an innocent defendant convicted of a crime he didn't commit. And so... There's a standard that applies to the prosecutor here that doesn't necessarily apply to the defense, theoretically. Practically speaking, though, a lot of prosecutors have a political agenda in mind. They might have a political animosity to a particular defendant. Many times they have their own careers at stake and so on, and they want to build a reputation by showing that they're effective in court. And so many times the interest of doing justice gives way to the interest of getting a conviction at all costs. And so I wish we could say that all prosecutors were objective and committed to justice, but I'll just simply say they're as human as the rest of us. But let's move on to the next part of this, then the right to a speedy trial and the right to a public trial. Now, the average defendant probably doesn't really want a public trial very badly. He doesn't want all of this to be plastered all over TV and all over the newspapers and the like so that his parents and his girlfriend and his neighbors and his second grade Sunday school teacher can read all about what he supposedly has been doing. So probably the average defendant wishes all this could just either go away or just be done in private behind closed doors so nobody else has to find out about it. But the fact is, a public trial is for the benefit not only of the public, but also for the benefit of the defendant. It benefits the public because the public needs to know about our judicial system, needs to know how the judicial system operates. Interestingly, it used to be in the days before movies and television and the like that going to the courthouse on days when there were trials taking place was one of the most common 
entertainments in our communities, our small towns and rural communities throughout the country. And people would just go to court just to watch the trials and see what was going on. And as a result, they probably came to know more about how the legal system operates than people who do nothing but see MCI and so on on television. And that probably means that when the time came for them to serve as jurors, they understood what their role was better than people would understand that role today. So there is an interest to the public in having a trial public. But there is also an interest to the defendant as well. And that is that if the trial is held in private, there is no guarantee that the prosecutor and the judge aren't going to engage in some very arbitrary, some very unfair, some very corrupt practices. Having the trial in public, where there are people sitting out there watching, where there are reporters who are hungry for a story and know how much the, their career would be advanced if they could come in with a scoop about a story about how this judge acted unfairly in this case, and sell papers and everything like that. But having a trial that is open to the public probably prevents judicial unfairness, or at least limits judicial unfairness. And therefore, it works to the advantage of the defendant, even though the defendant doesn't want the trial public. Now, there are a few exceptions to the public trial guarantee. One of those exceptions is in regard to sexual offenses, rape offenses in particular, where the rape victim, if she had to testify in public where the reporters are all watching and reporting on what she says and where questions that might be asked about her past sexual history, which could be relevant to the issue of whether she consented, that, that in circumstances like that, there are some very limited conditions on which the right to the public to be present at that trial can be limited, but and limited, not completely closed off. But at any rate, with a very few exceptions like that, the defendant has a right to a public trial, and that's a right that really works to the defendant's advantage, even though chances are he may not want it initially. Well, public trial by an impartial jury. Now, the guarantee of a trial by jury is an important guarantee. It's a guarantee that before a defendant is found guilty, we are going to have 12 people from the community, people that represent a cross-section of the community, people who are not on the government's payroll and don't owe any special favors to the judge or the police or the prosecutor. They're going to render their impartial judgment as to whether the evidence proves the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. We've already seen one protection for the public and the defendant in the grand jury, the grand jury of usually 23 persons, although we don't follow that literally so much anymore, but a grand jury that will look at the evidence and decides whether or not there's probable cause to even bring a charge. But if a charge is brought, then the defendant has this right to a trial by jury the jury determining guilt rather than a judge. And with this right trial by jury, it means that all 12 jurors have to concur that the defendant is guilty or 
we have a hung jury. In other words, that no verdict comes out, which means the prosecution is usually free to refile the charge and get a new trial. Sometimes they do, or sometimes they just dismiss it. Sometimes they are willing to settle for a plea bargain at that point. But anyway, so that is your right to a jury. You can have a jury, or defendants can waive the right to a jury if they wish to. And in fact, defendants have trials by jury not all that often. In fact, about 94% of all cases, all criminal cases, in both federal court and state court, about 94% are settled by a plea bargain. And a plea bargain is where the prosecutor agrees to either accept a lesser charge like second-degree murder than what the prosecutor might have originally wanted, or agrees to recommend a lower sentence than what he might have originally been inclined to in return for the defendant agreeing to plead guilty. And the defendant's giving up his right to fight this in court, in which case, if he fought it in court, he might possibly win entirely, or he might lose and be convicted of something worse and face a worse sentence. And so sometimes the defendant will take the safe way out, the easier course and agree to a plea bargain and prosecuted a rule as well. And that's how cases resolved in more than 90% of all cases. But then of those that do go to court, sometimes the defendant will demand a jury. Sometimes the defendant will waive his right to trial by jury and ask to be tried by a judge alone. And there are reasons for both. One of the advantages of a jury is that jurors are not so tied into the system that they're probably less cynical about defenses the defendant might raise. You only have to raise a reasonable doubt in the mind of one of the 12 jurors to get a hung jury rather than this one judge. And sometimes jurors are more swayed by emotion, at least we think so, and we tend to think judges aren't swayed by emotion, but in fact, often they are. On the other hand, Sometimes it might be better to go before a judge, especially if this is a case that involves some emotional inflammation, like maybe a child sexual abuse case. A judge might be more objective than a jury. Maybe it involves a complex legal defense that a jury might not understand and appreciate, but a judge might be more likely to. And also, the trial by judge alone is probably going to go a lot faster and is going to cost less. So. There are reasons why in nearly half of all cases where the case does go to trial, the defendant will opt for a trial by judge alone. But the right to trial by judge alone or jury, the defendant has the option. And that trial by jury right is one that certainly should be there and one that I would never want to give up. I appreciate I your explanation. Your case, but not as a principle. Because I, I had never considered that there might be times when a person would not want to, to have it go to a jury. That was... That was a great explanation. Hold that thought. We're going to come back in just a few moments. This is Constitution Classroom. back 
This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And today we are talking about the Sixth Amendment. Colonel, I believe we have arrived at uh, the point where we're going to discuss what we mean by impartial jury. That's part of the guarantee, an impartial jury. And the guarantee is a jury of 12 persons. And for a while, the court was saying that you could satisfy the demand of trial by jury by having a jury of less than 12 people, not less than six, but less than 12. But now with the recent decision just a few months ago, now the court seems to be back to saying that juries have to be 12 persons and have to involve unanimous verdicts. But the jury has to be composed of impartial people. In other words, the prosecutor couldn't just go out and stack the jury with, let's say, six policemen and six deputy sheriffs. And not that they couldn't be impartial, but they might have a tendency to be on the side of law enforcement. Or people from the neighborhood that know the victim very well and like the victim or don't like the defendant. Rather, they have to be people who are impartial. And the idea is that a jury verdict is to be a consensus, not just a majority vote, but a consensus of a cross-section of the community. And that's why if a certain segment of the community is left off the jury or excluded from the jury, then that requirement of an impartial jury has not been met. And we have a number of cases where if, if you just, let's say if you're in a neighborhood that's say mixed black, white, and Hispanic, and if those who are, are called in the jury pool just by random, if it just happens that we have an all-white jury, that's not a problem. But if the prosecutor has deliberately challenged or excluded people from the jury who were of let's say the black race or the Hispanic race, then that would be a basis for a reversal and for saying that the defendant had been denied his right to an impartial jury. He's entitled to a jury that represents that cross-section. Also, it has to be people that are able to render an impartial verdict. That doesn't necessarily mean people who can't, who have know nothing about the case at all. In fact, if we did that, if, especially if the case has had a good deal of publicity on television and so on, then if we excluded anybody who had ever heard of the case, we'd be left with a jury of perhaps the most ignorant people in the community. But it has to be people who, if they have heard of the case, are able to set aside what they've heard and render an impartial decision based solely upon the evidence that is presented to them. If the defendant is... It's not or if the if the and, and let me just explain this. That's why we have what we call war dire. That is, it means literally see and say, where we question the jurors. Sometimes the judge does the questioning. Sometimes the attorneys for each side do further questioning, asking, "Are any of you related to the defendant? Any of you related to the victim? Are any of you friends with the victim? Have any of you ever?" been accused of a crime similar to this? Have any of you been a victim of a crime similar to this? And other questions like this that might indicate a certain prejudice on the part of a juror. And if there is such prejudice, then that juror 
will be challenged for cause and excluded. After all of the jurors have been questioned, and let's say, let's say we still have 18 jurors and we have a 12-jury panel, and after everybody has been challenged for cause, has been eliminated, we still have 18, then we go to the peremptory challenges. And that's just challenges just based on maybe, I just didn't like the way that particular juror looked at my client. I didn't like the way, I just got a bad feeling about him, and, or the prosecutor the same. And so usually you'll then go back and forth. The defendant will issue a peremptory challenge to one of them, then the prosecutor, then the defense, then the prosecutor, until finally we're down to 12 jurors. Now, we have an interesting case, this case involving Roger Stone in Washington, D.C., and supposedly having lied to federal authorities about the Russia probe. And anyway, he was convicted of lying by a D.C. jury and given a sentence. And now, as we have seen just in the last few days, the president has commuted his sentence. As he's commuted the jail portion of the, Senate, of the sentence. Now, the president has the power to pardon all federal offenses. And probably every president has exercised that power on a few occasions. But in this case, President Trump did not commute the the sentence or pardon the entire sentence or the entire conviction because Roger Stone may decide he wants to appeal that and, and go forward and seek a new trial. But he did commute the sentence, so at least for the time being, Roger Stone is not going to have to go to jail. But the possible basis for a mistrial here that might be raised on appeal is that there was a jury foreman who, she was a lawyer, but while well, she had disclosed to the court that she was, in fact, a Democrat, she did not disclose to the court that she had been sending text messages or emails, other, other such social media messages, referring to President Trump as the Klan president and referring to his racist associates, and that when obscene messages were cast on the Trump Tower, she just referred to that as saying, gotta love it, and so on. And she had said a number of things like this before the trial that she did not reveal during the juror questioning. And all of that might indicate that this juror was biased, and since she was the forewoman of the jury, her bias might be especially important. But all of that should have been disclosed. Now, the key question, though, in, in that case, I'd say the evidence of bias was so blatant that she had a duty to disclose it, and the judge had a duty to excuse her from the jury. But let's say a juror just simply says, well, I saw some, I, I saw the case on television, and well, it looks to me like there's some pretty good evidence against the defendant there. Not automatically excused. In that case, what the judge is going to say is, well, despite what you saw and what you thought at the time, are you able to set that information and those opinions aside and render judgment in this case based solely on the evidence and arguments? that is presented to you in this case. And if the juror can answer yes to that and convince the judge that he or she really can do that, then the juror is 
entitled to serve on the jury despite having some knowledge or even some initial opinions about the case. In this case, though, I think the opinions were so blatant and were concealed that in this case, I think there is pretty good evidence that there was juror misconduct here and that that is a basis for a new trial. However, if Roger Stone is successful in getting a new trial out of this case, it will be another trial before a D.C. judge, probably a liberal Democrat judge, and a D.C. jury, which is probably going to be composed mostly of Democrats. And so he may have another biased judge and another biased jury. And this time, the judge or jury could impose a, a jail term again. And when that comes down, President Trump might not be around to issue a commutation. And so for those reasons, Roger Stone might decide that he doesn't want to pursue his appeals further and just settle for the conviction, but no jail. Anyway, all of this demonstrates our judicial system is far from perfect, but in most cases, it is composed of people who are trying to do the right thing. And I can only say that if I have to go to trial as a criminal defendant, I'd rather go to trial here in the United States than anywhere else in the world. Understood. We've got about one minute left, Colonel. Uh, are there any final thoughts that uh, that you'd like to add in that uh, that minute? Well, there's a lot more in the Sixth Amendment that we're going to be looking at in coming weeks about the right to be informed of the accusations against you, the right to subpoena witnesses, the right to cross-examine the witnesses that are against you, the right to assistance counsel. But suffice to say that as those of us who are constitutional conservatives, we believe in law and order. But we also believe that law and order means that there should be justice for the defendant, and it means that the government needs to follow the law. And so being strict constructionists and insisting that the rights that our Constitution guarantees to the accused are strictly enforced and protected for the defendant, that's something we should all be in favor of. 